They are so, 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 so beautiful. How wonderful to hear someone being so pleased by something. The voice you just heard belongs to a friend of mine and she has just received something when she sent me a WhatsApp and she sent me that message. Well, it was a longer message. You'll hear more of the message later. And in that spirit, I'd like to say that this episode of An Adequate Podcast is full of mysterious beauty. It's the third, or maybe it's the fourth in this series, which includes the sound of people typing. It's got new people typing, and the clips of the typing are mostly shorter. Well, no, they're all quite a lot shorter than in the previous episodes. And they're from other writers who I know and like very much who sent me the sound of their typing after the ones you may have heard already. And as it happens, I never actually asked anyone to send me a particular length of typing. So one of the people who you're going to hear shortly, who is a writer mostly, but not only, of um, moving and often very funny writing for young adults, sent me just 40 seconds of typing. Another one who is the author particularly of books about writing and rhetoric and argument and um, clarity of expression. He, it's it's another he, sent me a 30-second clip. And the third of these men, they're all men this time, who is both a prolific writer of fiction for adults and uh, also of journalism and non-fiction, and he's a professor, sent me about a minute, a little bit over a minute, but I've cut it and there's a certain amount of background noise. But I thought that was really interesting because what you'll hear in these three authors in succession are the the sheer, I wanted to say furious, but that's the wrong word, the sheer sort of energetic rattle of the keyboard. Also, one of them uses a word, uh, suddenly expresses himself which is quite interesting. And the last one of the three, and bear in mind the the three together is barely over two minutes. Um, The last one of the three makes a noise, uh, it doesn't make much noise in in a space which is very noisy. In fact, when I first got the audio file, I had to edit it a bit because it sounded a bit like he was typing on the runway at Heathrow or possibly inside a, a hairdryer. So um, the noise, the audio isn't great. That's my fault because I didn't give any kind of technical instruction and I didn't probably edit it brilliantly. So that's the first thing you're going to hear is those three writers typing. And I just uh, share that with you, a reminder. I'm sharing it with you because I'm in the middle of writing something, probably a book proposal, probably a book, if I'm lucky, um, about writing and it just occurred to me to ask people for tips on what might go into that and one of the brilliant people in my WYSI group, I think it was Menka, said why don't you record yourself typing and I did it and I liked it so much I wanted to hear other people. So I've asked some other writers to do this thing and I like the sound of other writers. I like it so much that I decided to do something which you'll hear after which is a symphony for five writers. I've taken the audio from the two other writers 
who you may have heard in previous episodes, and from the three who you can hear today, and I've turned it into a sort of a concert. It's only six and a half minutes. But what I really like about it is that my friend who writes for The Times, who you may have now found out is Satnam, um, starts it, and you can mostly hear his builders. And then on top of Satnam, I drop in Pelita from the FT, and then I've dropped in, I think Tony is next, Tony McGowan, who is the one of the three you're about to sound, uh, to hear, sorry, big pardon, and then comes Jay Heinrichs, and then comes Ian Sansom, and then those three drop out, and you're left with Polita and Satnam, and I curtailed their typing, because you've heard it already in previous episodes, but I have merged them, so what you're going to listen to is, is at different points, different journalists and authors typing together. I'm going to stop now so you can hear them typing and you can hear the symphony for five writers. And then after that, I'm going to give you some material from what I wrote yesterday on how to write. Okay, so that was the three writers individually, Tony McGowan, Jay Heinrichs, Ian Sansom, and now you can hear them as part of this symphony for five writers.
Well, apart from the proms broadcast live from the Albert Hall on Radio 3 and BBC 4, I don't think you're going to hear anything better than that. And now, turning back to the little snippet with which I started this episode, the They Are So, 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 So Beautiful, um, I should explain that the, the inciting incident was that I sent my friend two drawings that she had commissioned and and she was very pleased and i think i owe it to myself to to play this really touching message that she sent me they are so 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 beautiful and i don't know why i kind of thought that you were sending me a bit of hockney computer art i, I absolutely had no idea that they were going to be this wonderful and this beautiful um Oh, and where have I put them now? I wanted to. Oh, well, never mind. You can you, when you when you um, start doing reviews online, you can. Yes, there they are. When you start doing reviews online, you can post post this review. Oh, JP, I'm so so happy. Thank you. I'm just looking. They're completely completely gorgeous, and you are really really clever. And oh, oh, I don't know what to say. Love them, love them. Okay, lots of love and thank you. And now I'm going to read to you the first in a shortish, time-limited series about how to write, which I posted on my website yesterday. Today I've already posted uh, the second one. I'm just going to read this thing which I posted yesterday. I was so enjoying myself, I added lots of photos. The first photo is of um, a rioter standing in front of a car that's on fire. And I not only added photos, I added footnotes, which is an exciting thing for me to now know how to do on my website. Anyway, I'm going to, what you hear after this moment is just that essay on my website. If you want to find it, you can find it on my website, flintoff.org, under essays. Here goes. Riots, brooms and giant whales. Hi, this is the first in a shortish, time-limited series about how to write. It's a follow-up to the course of that name which I created for the Idler Academy. I'm calling the series Write to Change the World, or WTCTW, because the subject of how to write is vast and it needs to be contained somehow. So I'm containing it by looking back ten years to the summer when I wrote How to Change the World, which was published by Macmillan in The School of Life. I'll be sharing how I went about it and what I might do differently if I were to write it now. So to begin, a little scene setting. It was 2011, a summer of riots in London, where I live, which were followed up by the charming 
hashtag riot cleanup movement in which tens of thousands of Londoners used social media and that hashtag in particular to coordinate street cleaning. I've posted a picture on my website of about 10 or 11 of them standing with their brooms in Camden near me. Back then, the mayor of London was Boris Johnson. Now he's prime minister. When Johnson visited Clapham just after the riots, he was greeted by cries of, Boris, where's your broom? Yesterday in Parliament, he received essentially the same message, though without the light-hearted overtone, as MPs gathered to debate the mess in Afghanistan. As I wrote that last sentence, I was conscious that you might be reading it long after I type it. You might think, what mess in Afghanistan? And who is Boris Johnson? This is one of the difficulties facing any writer, how to be up to the minute and also relatively timeless. For most of my writing life as a journalist, I've known that editors only really want me to include what is new. As an author, the pull is often in the other direction to write something that will endure. In 2011, as I worked on writing How to Change the World, I wrestled with this problem. Riots followed by hashtag riot cleanup could have made a wonderful case study, but would they seem, with hindsight, terribly dated? Another thing that worried me was this. I actually knew the man who started hashtag riot cleanup, Dan Thompson. And because I knew him, I thought hashtag riot cleanup might be too parochial to interest readers far away. I didn't know then that Dan's idea and the movement he inspired would become very well known. Looking back, I wish I'd made more of it. For what it's worth, hashtag riot cleanup did inspire me to make some kind of creative work, to internalise it. I think we all tend to do this when something is important to us. Sometimes the creativity is elaborate and sometimes we merely express a few words. We might tweet about it, mention it to somebody on the phone or in times long past write about it in a letter to a distant relative. Me? Don't ask me why, but I turned hashtag riot cleanup into a version of the willow pattern plate. In my plate, the three figures crossing the bridge became somebody in a hoodie chased by a police officer chased by somebody waving a broom. The traditional pair of lovebirds became a plane and a helicopter watching the buildings below, which are on fire slash have broken windows. The pattern around the edge of the plate included Union Jacks and the London transport symbol. There's a preliminary pencil sketch of that plate on my website. As I thought about writing How to Change the World, I gathered examples of people who have actually done that, and then I looked for patterns in how change happened. Instinctively, I sensed that it would help if I combined examples that are current and local with others far away from me in time and space. And I think that instinct was right, because if you zoom out of the particular situations I've mentioned already, riots in London, the Taliban retaking Kabul, you see a pattern. Number one, ah! Number two, people draw attention to a problem. Number three, somebody has an idea to resolve it. Number four, the idea is shared. Number five, the idea is acted on. Number six, a new problem arises. Ah! This is also the pattern of classic stories. Incident, ongoing adventure, resolution. 
We hate stories to be unresolved, which is why it's so ghastly today to feel uncertain about the fate of particularly women in Afghanistan under Taliban rule. And as it happens, the same pattern applies to me and you as a writer. There's almost always some kind of ah, even if it's the pleasant ah of being commissioned to write a book that you will enormously enjoy writing. After a while, you get used to feeling ah and accept it because fear is the flip side of excitement. You can't have one without the other. And with writing, as with changing the world, sooner or later, somebody will come up with an idea to resolve the problem. It may even be you. Tips for writers. So much for what was happening out there in the world in the summer of 2011, but what was happening in my own life, particularly my life as a writer. To remind myself, I opened up photos on my computer and scrolled back to pictures taken that summer. And I found one of me with a group of others training in theatrical improvisation with the great Keith Johnston, who is pictured seated in the centre bearing a devil's trident. I'm at the back with a yellow balloon, which, believe it or not, was a very important prop. By this time, I had been a writer for more than 15 years, but training in impro was transformative. As I've written elsewhere, it was a bit like being given X-ray vision because it opened my eyes to much that I had previously seen but not really understood or noticed about everyday life. It was a boost to my self-confidence standing in front of people. But the reason I mention it here was that it added massively to what I already knew about storytelling. And one of the things it taught me was the usefulness of reincorporation. When you're improvising, you have no idea where you're going. You're like a person walking into the dark, and naturally this can be scary. What I learned from Impro was to build a framework as I went along, using whatever I have used already. Let me give you an example. Once upon a time there was a fisherman, and he lived in Margate, and when he was walking down the street in Margate, he bumped into a fellow who was carrying a broom. Pause. I wrote that without any idea where I was going. I haven't edited it, and if you look closely, you'll see that my mind was drawn back to hashtag riot cleanup. And that's no surprise to me because we're pattern-making creatures. Our brains instinctively seek to make sense of random inputs. Now allow me to talk you through in slow motion what happened as I typed that little fragment of story. I began with a fisherman, God knows why. And because he was a fisherman, I knew, I, I knew he had to live by the coast. Although, mind you, since I'm going in slow motion, I did have a fleeting idea that it might be funny to have him live inland, but I instantly abandoned it as not that funny. The first coastal town that popped into my head was Margate. Why? Why Margate? Because my friend Dan Thompson lives there. Or he did till recently, although I hadn't checked. So you see, again, my brain was insisting on making patterns. And because Dan came into my head, he had to be carrying a broom. Now, let's imagine that I carried on writing in this manner for a while. It's entirely possible that I might have done so without mentioning fish, or fishing, or boats, or thick woolly sweaters, or storms, or the sea. Not for ages. What Impro taught me was that if I take my time, if I don't panic, I will remember what I've already used and I'll feed it back in. I'll remember that the fisherman is a fisherman 
and I'll have him chased down Margate High Street by a giant whale or something. Why is this important? Because the audience at some level is expecting it. The audience notices that I mention a fisherman and tucks away that bit of information, assuming that it will be relevant to the story. In exactly the same way, cinema audiences notice when a character puts a gun into a desk drawer at the start of a movie and gets tense whenever somebody walks near the desk, wondering if the gun is about to be used. If nobody uses the gun and the film finishes, the audience feels short-changed. And in the same way, if my story never resolved to being about a fisherman as such, I think my audience would unconsciously feel strangely let down. But as I said, to do that you have to take your time and not panic, which is extremely difficult on stage because naturally you worry about boring your audience. But not only on stage. Even typing at a desk, writers worry about boring an audience. It's just more intense on stage. So, circling back to the writing I'm doing right now, right here. Impro taught me to trust myself to get started, knowing that I can always reincorporate. I don't know if it was the right decision to start this series with something about the London riots and hashtag riot cleanup and my impro training. What would be right? I don't know yet. But I do know that if I don't start somewhere, I'll never finish. My best hope is that I will, at some point, reincorporate some of this material about riot cleanup, Dan Thompson, Willow Pattern Plates, Keith Johnston, Giant Whales, Yellow Balloons, and you'll read it and smile, thinking, gosh, this chap Flintoff really knows what he's doing. How clever to have set it up like that. If you'd like to keep up with the series of pieces of writing and other things, the best way to be sure you keep up with it is to subscribe to my Everyday Writing newsletter, which is on the website. I won't always put things on, on this podcast, but I might sometimes. I haven't really quite worked it out. As you know, I'm just laying down one piece of train track at a time as the train on which I'm riding hurtles forward very fast. Thank you.